Dotnet Rocks episode 737 with guest Jeremy Lickness. Recorded live Friday, January 20th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter and now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard and Richard and Carl, however way you slice it, it comes up peanuts. Or at least .NET. Do you remember that slogan, no matter how you slice it, it comes up peanuts? Yeah, that was a chocolate bar, wasn't it? It was Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, I think. Huh. Oh, no, no, it wasn't. It was Snickers. Okay. No matter how you slice it, it comes up peanuts. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how your brain just... I, I, I didn't rehearse that. No, just sort of came to you. It's amazing. It's, All right. Yeah, okay. So, better better no framework. I like it. <laughs> it just came to you, huh? I did. I don't okay. know why. Don't know where that stuff comes from. What framework are we poking in today, Mike? Well, friend? we're not poking into a framework. We're going back to CodePlex. I like to CodePlex. Look, yeah, to look at the stuff. I find it funny that the most popular downloads on CodePlex are for playing games. You know, really? They're not even tools that anybody's going to use the source code for development. No, they're going to be using them to play games. Yeah. But uh, besides the virtual router, which is the number three, the first two are game-related things. The fourth one, the fourth most popular download on uh, CodePlex is the Image Resizer for Windows. ImageResizer.CodePlex.com. It's a Windows utility that lets you resize one or more selected image files directly from Windows Explorer by right-clicking. Really? Yeah. That was a, a power toy for Windows XP. Yeah, I remember. I used to use it. Yeah. Now you can do it. Boom. Boom, boom, boom. Easy. So, and that has had, believe it or not, here's an, a good example of existing technology that we, because it's not new, we f- think that it's not valuable. And then along comes Image Resizer, and there you go. So, uh, 13, no, 133,000 downloads. Yeah. That's it. That's awesome. That's awesome. So, Richard, who's talking to us? And what are I they saying? I an email. This is from Jason Bernier, who says, Dot Gentleman, which is a hell of a name. <laughs> nice. Gentleman. I've enjoyed .NET Rocks for a number of years now. Today, I was listening to the .NET Rocks episode 711, which was the one on Node.js. The one thing I didn't hear anyone talk about was code reuse. And allow me to explain. After reading Douglas Crockford's JavaScript, The Good Parts, which we talked about in episode 422, a few times, the language is finally finding its way into my monkey brain. Earlier today, I read a Wired article regarding Mark Lukowski, who was influential at Microsoft, then at Google, and is now at VMware heading up the Cloud Foundry initiative. Uh. Cloud Foundry embraced Node.js from the start. By coincidence, episode 711 pops onto my iPhone while I was raking leaves, and thanks for the diversion. I'm a professional .NET developer. After attempting to understand the JS source from a notable open source projects like jQuery and SproutCore, to name a few, and reading Douglas Crockford's book, I found that I don't know jack about JavaScript. You don't know jack <laughs> about JavaScript. So best measurement you can ever find about a guy who's actually an experienced developer. He's just like, I realize now I haven't a clue. Well, and you know, that's the first step towards being smart. And, you, you know, I would say that we interviewed Douglas Crockford 
and he is all serious, man. I, yeah, if I remember that interview, we were trying to have a little fun with him, and it was like, <laughs> nope. And that was 300 episodes ago, man. Yeah. That's a long time ago now. Yeah. Uh, uh, Jason continues, uh, JavaScript is almost everywhere on every modern computer, any decent mobile device, and now servers. It's bridge to Cocoa and a first-class citizen in WinRT. It's time for me to abandon my past prejudice for this language. But what's in it for me as a typesafe.net guy? I think less work is around the corner. Yep. I'm someone who embraces the idea of having a model that cleanly encapsulates the problem domain. One frustrating part is that the domain model, if done in .NET, is portable to Windows. That's really it without heroic effort. Hmm. Moreover, many web applications end up rewriting, at least in part, their model in JavaScript so they can provide a better user experience. Right. I know this must be some type of blasphemy, but what if the domain model was written in JavaScript? I'd like to see if it was possible to create a single domain model that, for example, could have a server-side repository that goes to a database and a client-side repository that goes to the server. That could be used on the server for services and on the client with a UI framework like Knockout.js or SproutCore. Hmm. Even the Windows-specific WinRT stuff should be, in theory, something you can abstract like you would any external system dependencies today in C-sharp. Are there deficiencies with not having a type-safe language? Maybe. I'm not convinced that this isn't something that decent tests can't overcome. I totally agree. The advantage might be truly reusable and portable logic with the promise that young whippersnappers will be able to maintain the code. Am I crazy? As long as you're not talking to proprietary APIs, which is what happens when, yeah. you know. You're going to get a data type issues and so the forth. The reason JavaScript is popular is because it's not proprietary. Right. If you start using it in a proprietary way, it's going, guess what? It's going to be in just another language. It's going to be a problem. So he says, am I crazy? Maybe. But I think I've just found a pet project. Best regards, Jason Bernier. Uh, Jason, you're almost certainly crazy, but we don't hold that against you. After hey. all, you do rake leaves. And we are crazy as well. <laughs> uh, and yeah, I think you're on to something interesting here and we have an interesting challenge to get somewhere with it, please post it on CodePlex so we can all play with it. And I will include a link in the show notes to the article you read on Wired, since it's published online, with uh, Mark uh, Lukowski, who is an interesting cat in general about thinking around what you can do with JavaScript. All right. And if you'd like a mug, because Jason's getting one, the coveted .NET Rocks mug, you can write us an email, .NET Rocks at franklins.net, or write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com. That's right. And uh, before we bring on our guest, Jeremy Lickness, let me tell you about Pluralsight. They're our newest sponsor, and Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have over 200 hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and other industry experts, such as those you hear on this show. They release 8 to 10 new courses every month and offer a 10-day trial where you have access to their full library for 200 minutes worth, anyway. Pluralsight currently has eight courses on Silverlight development including coverage of Silverlight 5 and Expression Blend for developers. Ooh. Nice. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. Pluralsight.com. And with that, let's introduce Jeremy. Uh, Jeremy Lickness is a senior consultant with Wintelect and a Microsoft Silverlight MVP. He's been working on enterprise web applications for over 15 years and has used Silverlight since version 3.0. He's the author of the book, Designing Silverlight Business Applications, that will be released the end of March 2012 and covers building a line of business apps in Silverlight. Welcome, Jeremy. Hello. Glad to be here. 
glad to be talking about Silverlight again because everything's been phone, tablet, tablet, phone, WinRT. <laughs> God damn it, I want my Silverlight back. What's wrong with Silverlight? Yeah, it's awesome. a, a good point. Um, I'll tell you what, though, people are talking about it. I just had a, a talk at a local users group, which ironically was renamed from a Silverlight user group to a XAML user group, but yeah. the talk was on Silverlight. And uh, we we had a full room, so lots of people saying that they're heavily in Silverlight development and expect to be for a while, so that was reassuring. So they didn't all ask, is Silverlight dead? No, they didn't. So I, I, I was a little scared. I thought, you know, I'm going to show up and either there's going to be two people and we're going to have several beers together and just reminisce about the days that Silverlight was popular. But <laughs> as it turned out, we had groups of people from a, a lot of different companies and and what they're really looking at is they're they're seeing that yes there's all this new tablet there's this that and the other but when you get to the core of what we have written a lot of our silverlight applications for which is that line of business uh, a lot of people aren't sold that the line of business apps can have the same level of functionality on a tablet form factor on a smart phone form factor. And so there's going to be uh, uh, quite a bit of work on that desktop style platform for a while. Nothing's faster than the keyboard. And you that's know, right. <laughs> and our, and our, you know, business app users, that's what they do. They learn the keyboard shortcuts and they get really, really good, really fast. Yeah. That's right. I was thinking about that. Actually, I was writing a, a section in the book about, <clears throat> excuse me, natural user interface. And I was thinking, what is natural about a keyboard? But the ironic thing is that there's almost this risk that everyone wants to go completely to everything should be connect and touch and swipe. Mm. But the fact is, I can't talk as fast as I can type. Right. And I can type slower than I can think, but I can't talk as fast as I can type. And it may not be natural, but it's certainly a, a faster way to get things to, to where I need them to be. But aren't we the anomaly? I mean, we have been typing all, you know, all of us have been typing for better part of 20 years, right? Well, well, we have. Um, we're only a few minutes into this and you're already calling me an anomaly. I'm not sure <laughs> what, what to make of that. But yeah, it, it is true. I started typing when I was about seven years old. So I think I did have a little bit of an advantage. And then we've got, uh, you know, people, I think actually more people are fast typists today, though, because children are, are growing up with, uh, you know, they're practically born with some sort of keyboard in their hand, right? Yeah, a but they're just using keyboard. their thumbs. A silver keyboard in their mouth. Nice. That's that's true. That's true. They can probably text faster than they can type right. from what I've seen. Well, I, I, you know, any any college grad that's going to be hired by a business to sit in front of an application and process valuable data and do it right, I think is going to know how to type, you know? That's right. Yeah. I hope so, so, anyway. I, I don't think the keyboard's going away anytime soon, and there is no other method that you can actually fill in a form with in any reasonable fashion. Is it easy to do keyboard shortcuts in Silverlight? Is it easy to do keyboard shortcuts in Silverlight? Yeah, for, uh, probably, for... probably not as easy as it is on WPF. With Silverlight 5, it, it got a lot easier because there's a lot more support and you can latch into to PMVoke and whatnot. Hmm. But um, I wouldn't say it's as straightforward as, as in a WPF where you can have your, your top-level command handler and bind the keywords there. You've got to, it's a little more specific in Silverlight, but it's possible. And all the applications that we build that are our line of business, that's always the risk. And that's always something that the customer is very focused on is making 
sure that as nice as it looks with touch, we still have to have our path to be able yeah. to to tab and focus and type and and alt this and and jump here. So right, it, is it, isn't there, aren't, aren't there key preview events in Silverlight, or am I thinking WPF like uh, for a forum? There are uh, different types of behaviors that you can hook into, and there's key up and key down. So you have similar things, but uh, you, you just basically need to build a, a library that intercepts those key presses and does what you need to do. And then you've got to do, and it's it's similar for WPF. I'm actually saying it's it's different, but you've got the whole hierarchy of the tree, right? So you have to know. Mm. If I have this key press, where am I? Am I at the top level, the bottom level? Is this global? Is this local? And and all right. that fun stuff. Right. So just because you have a form level key handler doesn't mean you don't know where you are. But it might be easier to implement, you know, alt keys and things like that. Yes. Yeah. So your answer <laughs> is no. No, my answer is maybe. <laughs> or it depends. You can, but you have to write it. I mean, it's not like there's a class just sitting there to just take care of it for you. You do have to write it. Yeah, and I'm, uh, I'm thinking you, of... You do have to write it, and that's it's very fresh in my head because we actually just did an application for a customer that was literally taking a, a WinForms and, and plopping it straight over into a, a Silverlight. And right. they didn't even want to take the, the steps really to change the look and feel. So it's a very WinForm look and feel Silverlight application. And to get that... <laughs> It actually takes some work. It's a lot easier to build a, a more touch-friendly and sort of silverlight experience. So doing all of the key bindings and key press and right-click and context was a challenge. But they wanted to give something that was easier to deploy, easier to access, but gave everyone the same UI and shortcuts that they were used to with their application that they used to have to install locally. i got to correct myself. The, uh, the key preview I was thinking of was a WPF thing. You do have form level key presses, but I'm not sure what happens if another control has focus, for example. Right, right. So, so that you, is a problem. You tap into that event and it follows the rules of bubbling, right? And so you have right. to just understand scope and use the right behaviors for that. Yep. Which is a, you know, that comes from DHTML way back when. Like it's just interesting how Silverlight really does bounce back and forth between the line of sort of that WinForms origin and the, and the SGML, sort of the web origin. Well, yeah, you know, used to say, and I will be the first to admit, I did not do a lot of programming in Silverlight 1.0. I know some people who did, but we kind of call that JavaScript Plus. Yeah. Right. So was, <laughs> we called it a glorified it an, animated GIF player. That's exactly <laughs> right. So it definitely has some strong roots in, in them their JavaScript days. Yep. There was a webby world once. There was. I lived it and uh, experienced the pain of it, and it was actually that angst that I heard a little bit in the email you read earlier that drove me to Silverlight. I was building a huge enterprise application using HTML and JavaScript and Ajax and trying to provide this desktop look and feel over the web. And it got to the point where the browser compatibility and the nuances of having a huge development team and maintaining the code base was just miserable. It was absolutely miserable. So we did a short proof of concept to see, you know, what's this Silverlight thing? And this was right at the end of 2.0. So we purposely waited until 3.0 came in because there were so many major changes. But we were able to port that application over, we knew it would run exactly the same anywhere that someone was able to just install the plugin. 
And from our estimates, we're able to produce about four times in the same amount of time using Silverlight than in the HTML and JavaScript-based world. Wow. Well, that's the sort of the compelling thing. And we've always had a sense of how quickly can you do that development, like the, the, the difference in productivity. What about, it's not just building code, but the maintainability, debugging, which is always a struggle on the website. Do you feel like the tooling's good for Silverlight in that space? Oh, I think it's fantastic for Silverlight in that space. Um, I think like anything else, you can have a poorly written application that, that makes it a nightmare when you're in the debugger trying to figure things out. But uh, the, the fact that, and it doesn't have all the features, right, that the, the desktop debugger has. You don't have edit and continue and some of those nuances. But for the most part, you can create nice, well-defined classes, behaviors, have clean code, well-commented code, and and step through it. You can run tests, which is is what we love. You know, the fact that there's that parity between the Silverlight runtime and the .NET runtime, there's a lot of code we can share between both and run our traditional MS tests, you know, through Visual Studio or through integration tests without even having some sort of harness for the Silverlight piece. So there's a, a lot of advantages for enterprise development there. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik Just Decompile. Recent developments in the .NET world have opened up a niche for a free .NET decompiling tool. If you, like so many other developers, have been looking for an alternative .NET decompiler, you'll most certainly welcome the launch of Just Decompile, a powerful tool which promises to stay free forever. Currently in beta, Just Decompile offers effortless .NET decompiling and assembly browsing, innovative code analysis and navigation, side-by-side -side assembly loading, auto-updating, and better decompiling accuracy. A product by leading .NET vendor Telerik, Just Decompile has an aggressive release schedule and a roadmap based on community feedback. You can visit the Just Decompile feature suggestion forum to let Telerik know what features you'd like to see added to Just Decompile or vote for one suggested by your peers. The official version launch is expected this summer, 2011. Go to Telerik.com slash .NET decompiling and remember to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. I'm really interested in, in Silverlight 5 from an audio perspective because I plan to do quite a bit with video coming up here this year. The low latency audio playback feature, uh, while I haven't checked it out yet, I'm really anxious to do that. And also, of course, H.264 hardware decoding. So if you've got hardware that uh, that can decode it, and I'm not sure exactly what kind of hardware does that kind of decoding, if that's a graphics card thing, a GPU thing or whatever, but it does speed up, uh, you know, video playback. It's cool. It, it, it does, and it has the uh, trick play. So you've got the pitch correction, so you can play something faster, but uh, hear it in a almost normal-sounding voice instead of a sort of, you know, type of voice. So, right. So that's I like a that. Can you do feature. that again? <laughs> uh, no, I only do it once, once a day. That's it. Ten bucks to do it again. <laughs> uh, I, right. uh, I'm sorry, it's it's impossible. That, that's all I've got in me. I've got to save some for for later tonight. It's Friday, right. so that is a fascinating sound, though, isn't it? Um, <laughs> what about Mac support for Silverlight Five? Did they maintain that because that always seemed to be the odd duck in this thing. It's really the people who are really hooped if Silverlight goes away are the folks who need to run on Mac. Right. And so the support's still there. You can still run on Mac. Now, having said that, 
what what the real concern is 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 I see two concerns that come up. One is that Silverlight Five was loaded with a lot of features. For example, if we say our our good friend that everyone loves to hear and loves to program against, which is PInvoke, right? Platform invocation services. Oh yeah, I love it. So so that's the big one. I know everyone's just ecstatic about that. And he's being and, a little uh, sarcastic here, folks. Yeah, 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 a little bit. Thanks for calling that out. Uh, I, <laughs> I got to do that because you never know. They might be sitting, oh, PM books. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and sorry if I offended anyone who truly loves PM book. But the, There's so much to the, love. Yeah, There is. There is. So uh, a lot of the big rumor was that Silverlight 5 would be, so this was before build, right? Before this tidal wave called Windows 8. And the rumor was Silverlight's going to die. They're not even going to finish 5. And then it was, well, they'll finish 5, but it'll only run in Internet Explorer and it won't run on Mac. And mm. and the fact is it, it's got full support across both. There's a lot of new features in 5 that don't run on the Mac, but you can still create offline out of browser applications you can interact with the file system there's parity with some of the elevated trust features you're obviously not going to do platform invoke and some of those others but that supports there i think the big worry or concern though is as osx releases future versions and as the browsers on osx iterate to later versions right mm. will microsoft invest in that support of maintaining the plugin forward and the only thing Microsoft said in this area at all publicly is that Silverlight maintains PSS support until something like 2021. Correct. That's the only thing they've said. They've not said there won't be another version. What they've, you know, they haven't said anything. You said PSS right. support? Yeah, the, the um, product support services. Okay. So in other words, when you make a phone call and say, I need somebody to help me with my Silverlight. Um, multi-core jitting. That's really exciting. I mean, that basically means the startup time for multi-core computers is significantly reduced. It, it, it is exciting, and unfortunately, I haven't had any types of applications that really lend themselves to us running any type of tests and benchmarks, yeah. and I haven't seen those. So we, we know it's there, and we know um, they've basically provided a teaser of the uh TPM library or TPL task par parallel library. Yep. Uh, but I call it a teaser because it's not fully implemented. So you can do some things which actually makes it uh, your code look a lot nicer and makes it easier to handle some of those asynchronous tasks, but you don't have the full support there. There's also supposed to be some improvements with the network drivers. And again, something that, you know, we've spent so much time optimizing the performance and tuning the applications that it's just not a concern. There hasn't been a reason to say, you know, in our millisecond feedback on this, let's, you know, run some tests and see, do we squeeze out any more performance? So some of those elusive kind of backend changes are, are there as well. 64-bit browsers now can run Silverlight. That's good. Yeah, 64-bit. So that that's the one I kind of laugh about because it was thrown around a, a lot before it was supported. Well, they must not be serious because they don't support 64-bit. And I would would always ask people, why do you need uh, a 64-bit plugin? I'll, a lot I'll of tell you why. Because okay. when you install Windows 7 X64 and you click on the Internet Explorer icon, the default version is the 64-bit version. If you want to run the 32-bit version, you have to go into Program Files x86, Internet Explorer, iExplorer, whatever it is, and make a shortcut to it. That's a good reason. Yeah. So the other thing, though, was at that time, there weren't really many 
plugins written for the 64-bit version, were there? Yeah, no. no a, whole I bunch, don't. a whole bunch of stuff missing for the 64-bit version. That's right. That's right. All right. I mean, the main advantage for uh, – I think there's an assumption that if I go 32-bit, 64-bit, now it's twice as much. It's kind of like the the yeah. spinal tap when you have the volume dial that goes to 11. 11. You know, it's just – it's one more. And, right. and you know, I tell people you can address a lot more memory. I hope you don't need to address that much memory from a Silverlight. I hope so, too. Yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you need more than four gigabytes of RAM in your user <laughs> process – what are you doing? It's really just about, for me, just about compatibility with the defaults. Yeah. Sure. But um, so uh, the 3D support, the XNA API built in there, that's pretty nice. I haven't I haven't really seen much of it. I've seen a little bit, of course, demos and things, but I haven't had the chance to play with it. Yeah, I haven't done much with the 3D either. In fact, uh, the, the book that I, I wrote, it, it just hasn't been a, a prime factor in any of my projects. So I left it out and still managed to get, uh, you know, a pretty sizable book. I think you could have an entire book devoted just to the, the 3D aspects. Uh, one of my problems is as a developer, I'm aesthetically challenged. And so anything having to do with the graphics and sound is, is really not my area, my forte. Um, I'll be lucky if I can put an ellipse or a square on the screen. So you start going 3D and it just adds a, another level of complexity I don't want to deal with. But, but very interesting. I've played with some of the demos, the Babylon and the, the model house builder, and it looks very compelling. And there's definitely some line of business applications that I can see, of course, the big demo when they had the fire starter was the the 3d anatomy explore and and things along those lines so it's exciting to see but something that, that i admit i do not know as much about yeah i'm I'm still pretty confident that there's stuff we can do in silverlight 5 that html5 can't do oh yeah absolutely well, I mean, we've we've had the advantage as a company. We've been approached by several customers who want to do a, a prototype, a proof of concept, really, in uh, both HTML5 and Silverlight. And uh, we can do it. And I tell people, you know, it, it's not that HTML5 can't do a lot of things. And people say, well, I want a rich UI. Should I go with Silverlight? Well, you can get a pretty rich UI through HTML and the tools and the libraries that are out there. Mm -hmm. It's looking at, you know, how long does it take to get there? How painful is it? How powerful are those tools? And how maintainable is it when you're done? Right. Yeah. So you, you, your point being, you really can build it all in HTML5, but it's going to cost you. Exactly. You exactly. That. And, and that's again when, so when we're looking at a customer, if they're building an application that has an install base that they're in charge of, so we know there's going to be a Silverlight plugin, then we can start to look at things like, well, you know, development time, code sharing, reuse of existing libraries. There's a lot of advantages there. If they're building an application that's out on the open web and we want accessibility by as many devices as possible, I, I can't change the fact that it does not run on the iPad or on right. the Android. And so that, that just changes the target. And it's not that you're crippled. You can still provide a, a good experience. You have to be smart about it, and it's probably going to be a little bit more painful than the workflow we're used to with Silverlight. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's so, and consequently, cost. Mm. Exactly. 
that that's the bottom line is the cost. And and again, you know, I'm, I think they're closing the gap. I keep saying four to one, and that seems to pan out, and it might average a little bit above that or below that. I think that gap's closing, maybe three to one, two to one, depending on the type of application. But there's still a significant difference in getting to market with that. Now, having said that, I'm sure there's a lot of frameworks that can be built in libraries that once a, a company gets momentum into that space, they have these pieces to paste together and that goes down a little bit. But that upfront flywheel that you start to push on is definitely a lot harder to push on going down that path than Silverlight, in, in my experience. Can, can we talk a little bit about the unrestricted access to any file on your on your drive in a trusted system? Is, is that just any trusted application because I make it trusted or does it require a certificate? So there's uh, two flavors of trust right now. There's a trust that is out of browser and that hasn't really changed. So that still, it requires that you sign your application and validate that, you know, you are who you say you are and you have a trusted source. Of course, the user could override that if they wanted to and put a, a expired or invalid certificate in their store. Well, and you can I wouldn't recommend it. You can still but. publish without having a certificate. It's just that the user will see a, a thing that says this is a potentially untrusted source. Right. So you you still, get- if, if they still trust you, they can still install the app. Yeah, that, that's right. They get two very different experiences. They get one, if you're signed, that gives you control. You can give a nice logo and icon, and it says, hey, look at this pleasant application, and it wants to do some things to your computer. Let's go along with it, versus the it's not signed, and it's like a big exclamation mark warning sign, you know, danger. Uh, we will let you install, but, you know, type thing. But, yeah, so ultimately they can, and then they've got that access. But what's new with Silverlight 5 is the trust in browser. Yeah. And the way that they tackled the trust in browser, and, and this is just based on on research and, and tinkering with it. It's a lot easier for developers because localhost is is just trusted. But if you really wanted to build an application and deploy that, it involves registry settings to enable that level of trust. So the thought there is that you know it may make sense to deploy in browser in some sort of internet environment. But we want to make sure that the administrators have access to set the appropriate policies on the systems to allow that type of access. And, you know, with the different tools for managing uh, Microsoft networks, you can easily push out some policies that will make, I say easily, I don't want to trivialize it, but you can push out those policies and make those changes. But it does involve a a registry hack and and certificates to get that in-browser trust. Okay, so so that's new, of course. Um, and you, do you think that this is what users wanted? And was that the response? Microsoft, uh, the reason that Microsoft did this full trust in the browser is because users demand that. Was it getting in the way, or? Uh, so it's interesting. Uh, apparently, and and I had not run into this issue personally. So none of the applications I've I've worked on and in the years and and even people I know in in my company uh, we haven't run into that issue where yes we have to have trust in the browser but I know from being on the the list for Silverlight and in the community I had seen those requests coming out a lot of people uh, it was it's kind of funny though I think they didn't get it the way they they were expecting right <laughs> they want I want trust in the browser and it's because I want to go outside of 
my documents and my pictures. I want to be able to go to other parts of the hard drive. Maybe it's just to provide a nice file explorer dialog. Maybe my utility requires that access for whatever reason. But that's why I need Entrust because you know without that you've you've got this uh, uh, restricted area that you can look at and you're you're stuck with the user's file dialog. You can't push any content to that. So so they responded, but then they responded and and the first early releases internal that that we saw. Uh, just had that that feature, and you could uh, opt into it, and then it was eventually evolved into this kind of more complex process. And I understand the motivation behind it, right? You want to be secure. We don't want this to turn into something that's very easy. Go to this web page, ha ha. You know, right? Your, your hard drive's deleted. So, but I don't yeah. think it was implemented quite as easily as as people expected or, or wanted to, who were asking for it. Now I know that uh, you, you said you're aesthetically challenged, but they did dramatically change or or at least re-architected and re-improved the uh graphics in silverlight 5 do you um yes. can you address those changes uh so the ones that i'm i'm specifically familiar with uh there's two that that come to mind immediately one is uh the the gpu access and uh the the ability to offload some activity so this was actually borrowed from windows phone windows phone had a, a new thread so in silverlight you had the ui thread and you had everything else right your worker threads and on the phone you had a ui thread and then you had a composition thread which anyone who does any type of um what's the word i'm looking for xna development is familiar with the composition thread and there's a loop and you update frames and it's it's that that game engine and so that was on the phone and that i believe comes from that hybrid ability capability on the phone that you have of of combining silverlight with x and a so then they brought this 3d api to silverlight 5 that looks like X and A. It's not, but it looks like it, which is is fine, right? Because it makes it easier to share code and kind of look at other examples. But they also brought the composition thread. So now with certain types of animations, what I can do is I can set them to use a bitmap caching mode that basically offloads the work of that animation to the graphics processor. And I've got a demo that I show when I talk about Silverlight 5 and uh, the new features. And it's basically a very simple demo where I have two squares that are spinning mm. on the screen. And then I have a checkbox that when you click it, it takes a thread that's sitting on the UI thread and it does a thread sleep for a random number of seconds and okay. then, you know, kind of spins a little bit. So it's blocking the UI thread. And then I click it and I say, can you tell which one's running? on the graphics processor. And I'll tell you what, one of those squares just starts j- 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 just jerking and shaking and the other one just keeps spinning as smooth as can be. Yeah. So that that's nice. So you can take some of the things that really shouldn't impact your main user input loop and your main core business logic. It's really presentation logic and offload that. And so so that's one of them. The other one is, is I'm not sure I'd call it so much a, a graphics feature, but uh, uh, the new uh, markup that they provided with uh, the overflow with rich text boxes in the, the beta, I believe it was, or the early preview, it turned into blocks. Uh, later on and broke everyone's examples but we you know did search and replace and, and dealt with it but it basically allows you to have a container for text and some other objects and allow it to overflow so that was one of the i guess uh sore spots with silverlight is if you wanted to make like a nice rich 
magazine reader program, for example, mm. there wasn't really good text manipulation available, and there's some good libraries that provide that. But this allowed you to do some more things with setting up columns and image flows and, and some other elements there. Were there some other features that, that I didn't hit on that you're thinking of specifically? No, I was more thinking of, you know, did the API change? Do we still have the same object model? You know, is there any breaking code? Right. So so really, the object model to use the GPO, GPU, for example, was just extended. So okay. it didn't really break anything there. Now, there was a break between the earlier release, um, what was it, community preview or whatever, and the, or maybe it was the beta and the RTM yeah. uh, that I talked about with that, that text block. But the rest of them were extensions, and then the 3D is just an entirely new API. So you actually get a surface that is a XAML element, and you, you pop that surface somewhere, and then that surface follows all the rendering rules from this new XNA-looking API that you use for 3D. All right, cool. Um, let's see, a lot of lot of other cool stuff for for business apps. Anyway, um, Pivot Viewer is in there. Now it's just there. It's baked in. If you haven't used it, now you don't have to go out and download anything else to add it. Right. And the the nice thing about the Pivot Viewer is you used to have to use a static collection. So I guess the the two big things were you had to to feed it a static collection to perform its pivots on. And you could really only use images and some markup for what the individual pivot pieces of data looked like. Okay. And with the version with Silverlight 5, you can dynamically generate the collection that it consumes, which is nicer for dashboards. But you can also use XAML as part of the oh. pivot control itself. So you can have this interactive experience where you have a bar chart and you drill down into individual components, but when you get to that level, it's actually an interactive dialogue that, that you can use. And does that mean that you can put any kind of element, like a like a video, a media player, media element? To be In, honest, to be as I, the pieces? <laughs> I haven't pushed it that far, so I, uh, that's a good question. I'm not I'd, so sure I'd want to, but it... <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that seems a, a little bit, because you can have so many data points, that that might be interesting for a uh, a performance test. Uh, let's see yeah, how it, it runs might, on your Well, it might be line. interesting to have, the, have them images until you get to a certain level, you know. Right. Yeah, I don't know, it's interesting. Yeah, it it's is. It's kind of cool. So, Carl. Yeah, Richard. You ever embed Excel into an application? Ugh, you know, that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice. Because your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah. And it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and plop it right into my .NET application. Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days. Yeah, 20 years ago I used Farpoint Spread, but now, of course, it's Grape City Power Tools Spread. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.NET and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package, so... You bought one, you bought the other. Right. Spread.NET from Grape City Power Tools. Smarter components for smarter developers. Hey, Jeremy... How seamless is the migration going from Silverlight 4 to 5? So for the most part, and when I say most part, I would say 95% is is pretty seamless. That 5% really comes in areas that were 
exploitations of defects or bugs. Oh, I see. So w- what I found is I had one uh, specific application that that was using a object and a resource, for example, in a way that it wasn't supposed to, and, and the code got away with it in Silverlight 4, and Silverlight 5 was a little more strict and, and didn't allow that. So that was an easy uh, fix because we just built the class that it should have been anyway to provide that service and went on our way. But there's some people, so the out-of-browser has been one area where it's this very powerful feature, but there's a lot less control than people would like over things like, uh, you know, where is it installed? How does the the update mechanism work? And so there's been some pretty interesting, I'd say, code bases I've seen that do some things through the local file system and through comment or op to find where it's located and manipulate some files. And that can get you into some trouble because you're really uh, going outside of the, the parameters of the API. And if they change some of those uh, structures or locations, then then that can cause some issues. But outside of those, uh, I haven't really encountered any issues. A lot of times it's been really just retarget, compile, and go. Well, and, and I'm pulling out a question here from Twitter from uh, Johan uh, Wendelstam, who asked that particular question, but also went on to say, what about coexistence? If I have a Silverlight 4 app, do I have to upgrade to Silverlight 5 or can I keep something in Silverlight 4 keep and build something new in Silverlight 5? Does, is that an issue at all? Uh, that That's not an issue at all. And in fact, uh, I, for a long time, uh, would develop uh, Silverlight 4 apps side-by-side with Silverlight 5 as part of the preview and, and beta just on purpose to, to understand if there were issues. And, and there were issues in the earlier releases with backwards compatibility, and I'm not going to say it doesn't exist because I will say on the list I've seen some people who do some pretty complex tooling and they are running into backwards compatibility issues. It's just the the types of applications I've worked on haven't run into those as, as much. But you can target Silverlight 4 with Silverlight 5 on your environment, and it should work fine. And for the most part, the runtime is backwards compatible, except for those little nuances that, that I talked about. So what's interesting about Silverlight is you can target the different builds of Silverlight. So you can target 4 and 5 mm-hmm. on the same machine. But whatever version of the plugin you have, that's what you're living with. So even right. if you're running a four app, it's running in the five plugin. So Microsoft has has taken uh, uh, extra care to ensure that backwards compatibility. But there are definitely some hiccups that I've seen on the list, and I think it it typically involves some some very uh, I don't want to say complex because that Im- implies, uh, you know, it makes me think of spaghetti code and a huge code base. Mm-hmm. But things that are doing some very clever, involved things that depend very much on on the APIs being exactly the the same, and and some things that that happen with the way the templates are are rendering sometimes uh, cause some snags there. So, hey, Richard, guess what time it is? It's that happy time again. It's time to give away a Telerik Ultimate Collection to a lucky fan. Woohoo! More specifically, a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Well, how do you become a member? Go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the Get Free Stuff button, because it's huge, you can't miss it, and uh, just answer a few questions. It'll take five minutes, and what you get out of, out of that is a chance to win every show, a Telerik Ultimate Collection, a Grape City Power Suite, uh, we're going to be giving those away soon, and the big giveaway, $5,000 worth of gear uh, next December. But you have to be a member of the fan club to win. So today's winner is Philip Herzog. 
Congratulations, Philip. Woohoo. Nicely done. Good song. Yeah. We like winners. So uh, we'll send you an email, and if you respond, hopefully you do, you're, uh, you're going to get it. Congratulations. Jeremy, tell me about jounce. <laughs> Sounds jounce. like a medical condition. It, it nice. does. It, it was interesting. So I'll tell you a little history behind the name, and then I'll tell you what it does. So uh, I purposely wanted to, to come up with some simple, easy, unique name. And I, I know the early runtimes of, of Silverlight, and actually if you debug Silverlight now, you'll see some of the namespaces that talk about Jolt, right? So it's this internal Jolt engine. So I literally said, oh, that's interesting, Jolt. What are some synonyms for Jolt? And it turns out that Jounce is a synonym for jolt. So you can be huh. jolted or you might jounce about. So I thought, hey, you know, jounce for jolt, whatever. So a little history on the name, but jounce is a framework I built that uh, was specifically to address what I was seeing around MVVM and the managed extensibility framework. And so I did a lot of work with the managed extensibility framework and was very excited to see the capabilities in, in Silverlight. And at the time, there were uh, you know several other types of MVVM frameworks. Prism was a very popular one. Mm -hmm. uh, there's MVVM Lite, and they're all great frameworks. Uh, you know, Caliburn, Caliburn Micro. So, so lots of good frameworks. But when I was looking at this particular marriage of of MEF and uh, the model view view model pattern a lot of the solutions out there just seem to be very complex. And that's not necessarily because of the way that the frameworks were built, but people were taking these solutions that maybe weren't targeted for MEF and, and coming up with all these exotic ways. And I was looking at, for example, what it took to define a, a through Prism, a module, and then, you know, dynamically load a, a catalog. And I went through all those steps and it just, it, it was like, wow, you know, MEF has this thing called a deployment catalog. I pass it a URI, I fire it off and boom, <laughs> you know, it just works. And I'm having to go through all this XML configuration and interfaces. But I said, you know what, I want to just build something that's simple and straightforward. I don't want to give people something that that tries to boil the ocean. And I know that's a cliche that comes up all the time in IT, but it's the best way I could say it. And I said, you know, these frameworks are great. And, you know, I even have uh, code nods, right? Uh, we'll call it that, you know, the comments that say, hey, this is an event aggregator pattern that's really based on the event aggregator and Caliburn Micro. And there's a concept of regions, which I really believe that Prism pioneered that. But I tried to keep the code base as small as lightweight, as easy as possible. And I said, I'm going to focus specifically on providing guidance for doing these applications in MVVM using MEF. And, and one of the advantages I had was we had done several enterprise level, very large projects with uh, uh, frameworks for different applications that uh, it was enough of these that I could see the patterns and the commonalities that were emerging from these. So I looked at it and said, what are the things I'm repeating over and over that I'd like to simplify and just make it easy and make it just work? And that's what I put into that framework. So that's what it is. It's a, a core framework that allows you to build Silverlight applications using the MVVM framework, takes advantage of MEF, and, and people are going to cringe and throw tomatoes at me when I say uh, sort of as a dependency injection, uh, inversion of control tool. 
So I, I do use it in that respect, and I know that that's not its original intention, but I figure if you can satisfy those requirements through something that's already baked into the framework, why not use it? Right. And then also for extensibility, so plug-in management, dynamically loading pieces of the application, and things along those lines. And so it's an open-source project. It's jounce.codeplex.com. I've actually got a source base that is very heavily uh, based on Silverlight 5. I just haven't done the final touches to give a formal Silverlight 5 release that'll be coming in the next couple weeks. And uh, another, uh, I'll say disadvantage, it definitely is for shops that are targeting WPF and phone and all these things. I purposely focused on what I was doing at the time, which was Silverlight apps. So it's not a framework that has... Uh, WPF implementation and WP7 implementation. It is focused specifically on Silverlight on the desktop. Hey, Jeremy, you do some development in the Win8 space as well. Have you been experimenting with WinRT? That is correct. And I've been looking at, uh, Carl put together this wiki that was sort of comparing the difference between Silverlight and WinRT, and it seemed to me that the closest thing to a WinRT developer is a Silverlight developer. What's been your experience? Yeah, that's the closest thing to a WinRT developer. You know, when you say that, I think from a a C Sharp and XAML stack perspective, right? I would agree. Okay. And uh, unfortunately, right now it feels like a step back, just because the support in XAML is is far behind what we're used to in Silverlight, and that's even behind what people are used to in. WPF, but you know, I have looked at my focus is definitely C sharp and XAML just because I have this background with Silverlight. I know a lot of customers looking to strategize sharing code between the two and what's the migration path, but I have ventured out and looked at the C story and the HTML and, and JavaScript. And I would say that, that we're going to get a lot of different flavors of developers on this platform. And I think that's something Microsoft targeted and sure. one of the reasons why they embraced it. So I think it's a, a good thing, trademark, right? But the, uh, the short story boring, I, I think the biggest fear that we heard moving into Windows 8, which I believe is directly responsible for a, a fall off of Silverlight projects, was the speculation that A, Silverlight would not run on Windows 8, which it absolutely does. And right. two, that all of our investment and knowledge in Silverlight would have to be thrown out the window. And it, it doesn't have to be. I think anyone who looks at the C Sharp and XAML stack will say, wow, you know, the, the tough learning curve piece of, you know, picking up XAML or picking up C Sharp, that's already taken care of and you've got that. You're just really learning the limitations of the XAML compared to Silverlight and then this new API and these new concepts. But you're not having to learn a new language or the, the XAML works well. I started to go down the path of porting Jounce to the, the WinRT runtime, the, the Metro runtime, and I was amazed there were some areas that were uh, a little tough to, to tweak because there wasn't parity there, but I was amazed at how you know 90% of it, there was overlap. And so that was a very pleasant surprise. So it's not just skills, but actually an awful lot of the feature set is the same. A lot of the feature set is the same. You're not going to be able to just take an app and, and drop it, and you're probably not going to be able to reuse a, a lot of the, the XAML, but I think anyone who's 
built a nice uh, a structured code base and followed what we would consider best practices. For example, uh, you know, a lot of people's view models, I think, would be able to to port over pretty, you know, straightforward. Now, the services that they talk to to interact with the no data feed, for example, those APIs are going to look a little different. But again, as long as they're segmented correctly, there's a, a large uh, base of code that can be shared there. Nice. And the views are going to be different because you really got a metro a lot more now. That's right. And that was really my philosophy behind Jounce, too, and not extending Jounce to the phone. Because I said, you know what, if I, I write my patterns and my services and the complex stuff that I'm doing for this business, I mean, view models when done correctly are easy. We're just basically marshalling between the application domain and the view and, and synchronizing some state. It's the services that go out and interact with this service, that service, data, you know, whatnot. That's the, the tough part. But if that's done correctly, then, uh, you know, a lot of that work is, is very easy to share and, and port, and it, it makes the, the path a lot easier. But I, I said, you know, but on the, the phone, there's a completely different navigation paradigm. There's a completely different form factor. So why would I want to try to force the same framework if, if the whole style is different? I might share some of my services and things of that nature, but mm. my presentation is going to be different. That was my conscious decision. I feel the same way about Metro. That's why I stopped porting jounce because i said you know what i'm not sure meth the magic sensibility framework it's there right but i'm not sure it's the right solution on metro and the way jounce handles navigation it, it just may be obsolete because there's an entirely new style for metro so why even try to, to force that uh, and then know? there's the fact that it's not even beta yet you know exactly and, <laughs> and that's uh that scares me a little bit because i've got a a project that's uh related to c sharp and, and xaml and uh i'm looking at that going okay in february is it tweak compile change and we're done or yeah. is it going to be back to square one jeremy lickness has been our guest jeremy it's been a pleasure talking to you Oh, I've enjoyed it. Uh, thank you for having me on. It's been a lot of fun. Viva Silverlight. Silverlight <laughs> is not dead. God damn it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All right. We'll talk to you later. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.